Crypto is for everyone, not just rocket scientists, venture capitalists, and high IQ developers. Welcome to The Agenda, a Cointelegraph podcast that explores the promises of crypto, blockchain, and Web3, and how regular-ass people level up with technology. Blockchain, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies exist solely to uphold the financial status quo and make the rich richer at the expense of regular folks in the environment. Or so the story goes according to many left-of-center critics. While many on the right have begun to embrace crypto, many on the left still see it as a threat and either approach it with caution or decry it entirely. With Bitcoin, in particular, known for being heavily associated with libertarian politics and ideas, it's easy to understand why more radically-minded thinkers may be quick to dismiss the technology as harmful or simply assume it's just not meant for them. But there is a seemingly growing movement of crypto advocates who firmly position themselves in the left and advocate for using blockchain technology as a tool for social change, not to uphold the status quo, but to fight against the status quo. One particularly active voice is Joshua Davila, who until recently was Anon and simply known by his pseudonym, The Blockchain Socialist. Josh is the host of the popular Blockchain Socialist podcast, where he explores both mainstream and niche crypto-related topics from a socialist perspective. He is also now the author of his first book, which is out now through Repeater Books, titled Blockchain Radicals, How Capitalism Ruined Crypto and How to Fix It. Josh Welcome to the agenda. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here, Josh. This is a particularly unique experience and a first for me in that you are visiting from an undisclosed location, but you are currently in New York City for a book launch that you just had for your Blockchain Radicals book. And so you are actually in my makeshift home studio at another undisclosed location where we are recording this fully disclosed podcast. So we'll see how this goes. So far, so good. But I want to jump right into the topic of your book. And so the, your book is called Blockchain Radicals, and the subtitle is How Capitalism Ruined Crypto and How to Fix It. So I want to first ask, what do you mean exactly when you say that capitalism ruined crypto? Do you mean that like venture capital funding has corrupted its original ethos, speculative crypto bro investing has distracted from the cypherpunk origins or is it something else or is it all of the above? Yeah, I think for that specifically, it's we have to keep in mind that crypto and blockchain is like heavily influenced by kind of, I would say, more right-leaning libertarian thoughts, which includes a lot of say support for capitalistic structures for free markets and for all these things so when i say this like i'm not saying like venture capitalism specifically because sometimes i think like we have so many words for different types of capitalism like surveillance capitalism being like a specific zombie form of capitalism that somehow has taken over and is and we've moved away somehow from the purer forms of capitalism that we used to have but i'm more on the side of kind of like the expected has happened a bit of where we have kind of built these things in the models of capitalism and for capital accumulation and sort of the things that you would have expected if you understood these things like have happened essentially. So even though there were, I think a lot of really interesting experiments in the beginning, there are really important things that were done. There is like this uncomfortable truth that this has happened. Like venture capital was eventually going to come in. Like, like venture capital, if there is no protection or like so for some reason stopping them from coming in, of course they're going to come in and they're going to ruin things because that's like 
the modus operandi of what they do. And when that happens, that means that there is a need for extraction, particularly of profits. And this has, of course, happened to an incredible degree in the cryptocurrency world and blockchain world. So yeah, to me, this is like something that was expected to happen. That's the subtitle of the book is the how capitalism ruined crypto. You just broke down a little bit about how you conceive capitalism and the different types about it. But the first half is blockchain radicals, or that's the main title. What I understand about the history of crypto is that it has slowly become more and more institutionalized, more and more ingrained into the existing capitalist system and institutions. You see banks embracing it. You see these sort of uh, on and off ramps being corporations, shareholder-owned corporations with profit motivations. So this all theoretically makes it easier to get into crypto. It's easier for someone like, I always reference my mom on the show and she listens to it. So shout out to you. Just because she's like sort of the, a good example of somebody who's curious about crypto, doesn't know much about it, wants to invest and just goes onto Coinbase and dollar cost averages in, right? So it's a lot easier for her to access crypto economy or crypto tools or whatever, because it's become so ingrained in our existing capitalist system. But does this have any implications? on the blockchain radical aspect of things? Is it easier or harder to be a blockchain radical with the likes of Coinbase and Binance and corporations and venture capital funding? Does it make tools easier to access? Does it take away? Like, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so my perspective, I think, like, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, I agree that, like, there is, like, this tension between slightly different groups within the cryptocurrency world. And I remember this kind of like tension growing over time. On one side, you had people who really were into like the cypherpunk ethos, really like, we want to build something different. We want to build something that is different from banks so that people don't have to use banks, etc. You know, we can go into like, maybe why some of those things were naive, but they were at least like idealistic about creating some new structures for how the world should work. The other camp being we need mainstream adoption in order for like everybody to get in on this and to like be a part of the revolution. And so like this is a tension you can't have. It's hard to have both at the same time. It's hard to like if you want to increase adoption, then like the easiest and quickest way to do that is to already use the existing institutions that exist. And those the main institution of capitalism is the limited liable corporation. You know, it's like the multinational corporation is like a cornerstone of modern capitalism now. And so that's the way that like people are going to like create the social organizations to make it possible for people to be able to access cryptocurrency, whatever else. This is how right now, like legal systems are designed. You know, it's again, like not surprising that this happened because that's how the world already existed beforehand. So people are just utilizing what's right in front of them to like make that happen without necessarily having a critique of the system itself. So what they end up doing, of course, is they are re-emphasizing the same system that they maybe were at one point critical of, or they were critical of in a, without like a complete analysis of like the things that they were trying to take advantage of, I would say. So whether or not that makes some, it easier or more difficult to make a blockchain radical, that's hard to say. It's like, I don't know if we had like still horrible UIs and just we're only using the bash terminal in order to like send a cryptocurrency that would make it more radical or not. Like it would make it maybe feel cooler, like you're a part of anonymous or something like that or whatever. That's hard to say. I think the addition of venture capital, though, for sure has made it a lot more difficult because it's become something that people now rely on. They think like, if I want to change the world, I need to make a startup. And I don't need to make a startup. I need to like get venture capital if they don't have money. And then that means that they have to 
you are making a deal with the devil where you have to get the returns that these people are expecting to get, which is usually really high valuations. You know, they're expecting 10x return or whatever else from their crypto investments because you're an early stage startup, whatever. So like, which is part of the book a lot that I talk about is like, we're kind of recreating the same types of social structures and organizations, but on chain or not even necessarily on chain, some of them just like using crypto. And therefore it's recreating, we're socially reproducing those same effects and the same things that we were maybe critical of before, but we didn't understand what the cause of it truly was. So in your view, what is the future of the crypto space on the finance side? And then on the non-finance side? Um, that's hard to say. I'm not huge on like making predictions about the future. I have kind of like my criticisms of how the world, the crypto world is existing today and things that I would like to see changed. It really depends. Like part of the reason for writing the book was to influence people to think more critically about the things that they're building in the cryptocurrency world to hopefully have them be the geniuses that maybe they are and to build something else that is more creative and like more radical I think what most people are attracted to cryptocurrency and blockchains in the first place is that they have this dissatisfaction with the status quo and like existing institutions are failing, which all I agree with. Sometimes I think maybe we forget how these things are producing themselves. So, I mean, as far as the finance side, who knows? I think if there is no real critical thinking, then I think there's just going to be a repeat of what happened in these last bull run, but maybe slightly different, different flavoring. Maybe it won't be NFTs this time. It'll be whatever new like token standard people decide. And then if we don't do it for the say the non-financial side, th that means that it won't grow very quickly if we're not very if we're not critical enough. So I think one of the things that people are starting to realize is that you can't make a crypto economy purely on finance, like purely on speculation, purely on abstraction and derivatives of other speculative products. So I think there's a need for that. And, you know, ideally what I would love to see on both fronts is just the creation of applications that allow for collective ownership of digital infrastructure. I think we are all using more or less completely privatized information and communication channels in order to stay in touch over the internet. And this has had a lot of problems that we clearly have. I mean, plenty of people who are Web3 optimists or Web3 startup founders will gladly talk about the surveillance issues of Facebook or of Twitter or whatever else. But like they need to create something that is different, that specifically gets at the root of the problem, which I think is how we own things and how we govern those things and recognizing that our resources should be shared in common rather than completely privatized by, you know, whatever next billionaire comes up with another big tech company. So in the book, you've got a chapter that says not all chains are created equal. What do you mean by that? And I know we should read the book to figure out, but this is also an opportunity for you to kind of drip a little bit and uh, hook people into becoming more curious to go read the whole thing. Yeah, sure. So most of the book, I focus on Bitcoin and Ethereum with some exceptions. And so I wanted to like, that chapter is more towards the end. I think it's like the second to last chapter. But I wanted to kind of give people a chance to learn about other distributed ledger technologies and other chains with that are using very, they're using different logics than maybe like Bitcoin or Ethereum and what those political and social implications are. So like all chains are not created equal because all chains are not the same. Like we can all probably agree here, Bitcoin and Ethereum were made differently and have different assumptions made about like, you know, something as simple as just like the inflation schedule of both of these assets 
which means this has produced very different cultures around Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin has people who are much, much more interested in a very hard cap supply because they believe in like digital gold narrative or whatever. Whereas Ethereum, I think, is a little bit more pluralistic in the types of people that it has attracted. Also includes a lot of people who are interested in like finance and derivatives or whatever else. So like in that chapter, I also talk about Cosmos, which is another chain with a different ecosystem with different logic built into it that Ethereum did not take. And so like, what are the political, socio-political implications of this type of blockchain system, which has where you have this the IBC bridge that allows for all these chains to be able to interact with one another. And then the other one that I talked about is Holochain, which is not a blockchain, but is a different type of distributed ledger technology and how the assumptions that they've made that are instantiated in code, all of these things, how that changes the social relationship between the user and like the infrastructure and the things that you build on that infrastructure. So like sometimes there is this tendency to like separate, we have technological things and then we have social things. But I think that's a very silly way of looking at things because the technology is kind of like what's facilitating our social relationships and interactions. Yeah. So like there's a different relationship between Twitter and Facebook have a, they have power over its users because they're the ones that hold the data. They're the ones that like approve or not, whether or not your posts are okay or something. So like there is this power relationship and in a peer-to-peer system, like the power relationship is just different and it's important to acknowledge that. And that means that like the technical architectural, like technical decisions that you make to create your blockchain or your decentralized application or your DAO or whatever else just has like downstream socio-political implications that should be front of mind whenever you're building these things. Just to be clear, you can only say the word Twitter for so much longer. It's X and you will put respect on the name. I'm curious about these other chains kind of bouncing off what Ray was asking about. There are chains explicitly built for privacy, for quote unquote challenging the status quo or being a blockchain radical. DarkFi, Monroe, you could argue, things like that that are specifically designed to facilitate activities or finance in a way that is very much against the norm. So for a chain like you mentioned Cosmos, chains like that or these alternative chains that aren't just Bitcoin and Ethereum, do you know if are people building on them with the explicit idea of we are going to be radicals and build radical applications on this chain? Or is it just the inherent characteristics of the chains and the way they're governed themselves that kind of inherently facilitates a more perhaps egalitarian or non-financial use of the chains? It's hard to say like what necessarily their like what their intentions were, I guess. But I do think that there is like there's this tendency of people wanting to make a new chain and there's but it's like a purely technically driven thing that's not very well communicated what those social implications are a lot of the time. Like our chain is different because it has like whatever different types of smart contracts and different virtual machine and whatever makes it faster or something like that. And usually this is like from a a pure like technical efficiency standpoint, which is like not, I mean, your audience is not just like efficiency nerds. So like they're not really, you know, distinguishing themselves very well, I think. But you have, I think one of the, like, for example, one of the chains that I talk about that are part of Cosmos, I think is like somewhat interesting is like Juno. Juno being one of the, uh, a Cosmos chain that like didn't accept any venture capital. They have a very interesting history. And I know a couple of people that are working on it. And they had this thing, a big thing in the Cosmos ecosystem at one point, which is like everyone was getting airdrops at a certain point. Like if you used Cosmos and you happen to like be staking Atom, like all of these new chains that were spinning up or new applications that were spinning up, there was like a huge opportunity for people to be getting airdrops. So 
with the creation of Juno, they did the same thing where they had like largely airdrop driven way of distributing their token. And they had a situation where they were trying to minimize the amount of farming for the airdrop. And after existing for a while, post airdrop, they found out that there was a guy who had somehow gamed the system. He was able to get like a shit ton, way more of the maximum of Juno tokens that was allowed per person or what they intended to. And basically, long story short, they had a very similar to the DAO hack situation where they reverted the chain or they reverted like they basically specifically expropriated the wealth of this guy who had way more tokens than he was supposed to on Juno. And then like it was, of course, a really contentious decision. And it was like they had a vote, they had an on-chain vote about it and like whatever else. And but a huge number of the people on the team supported it, like huge number of people who were supporting this blockchain or whatever were a part of it and they reverted this thing from happening. So the guy basically lost a bunch of money. So like there was a certain logic in this blockchain specifically that there are some technical things that like I'm not as knowledgeable about of what makes it special, but at least the like social decisions that they've made that are related to the techno ones where they have like very clear on-chain governance directly for the chain itself that had obvious socio-political consequences. Like they would not have been able to do that if this was Bitcoin. To me, that's great. That's fine. Like at the end of the day, I think it is humans that should be deciding what we do with our resources, not like some guy who made a decision however many years ago on what should be the technical specifications of this blockchain and whatever it is, is like, therefore is law. It's kind of silly. I think having a space where people can then go through this conflict resolution process is something that I'm more interested in than it is like, oh, well, he stole all the money and it's on the blockchain, so we can't do anything about it, right? Like ultimately we are the creators of our destiny. So we should like embrace that fact and implement that in technological code the best we can. I love that word expropriate. It's such an interesting word with an interesting history. I've been uh, listening to a couple of podcasts recently that have been discussing the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, sorry, specifically the Black Liberation Army, which is like an offshoot of the Black Panther Movement, Black Panther Party. When the Black Panther Party put down arms, the Black Liberation Army kept their arms, basically, and continued after the party kind of fell apart. And they would, quote unquote, expropriate funds from banks and places. So I've, I've been hearing that word a lot and it always, something about it just sounds, I don't know, funny to me. <laughs> it's just the, the word itself. So on the topic of, I guess, specific blockchain use cases, one of them perhaps expropriating wealth. In the book, towards the beginning, you go through some specific use cases of ways that Bitcoin and blockchain technology has helped people fight the status quo versus helping them rather than just upholding the status quo. Some examples of perhaps real world blockchain radicals who are using crypto to have a real world impact through the use of the tech or helped by the use of the tech. Without asking you to cite every specific example in the book, were there any that you found to be in your research into the book particularly interesting, inspiring, or maybe that caught you off guard as like, I wouldn't have thought perhaps that blockchain could have been used this way? I don't think there was anything specific that was like unexpected because I mean, granted, whenever I started writing this book, I'd already been doing the podcast for quite a while and I've been doing research for quite a long time. But I mean, a lot of the, I think, historical examples are kind of forgotten in the canon. When people think about cryptocurrency and blockchains, like, I mean, WikiLeaks is like the biggest one and the obvious one that people have, I feel like have largely forgotten and don't really think about anymore and have kind of like, I don't know, I really wish there was like a stronger movement in the cryptocurrency world that was more adamant about like getting freedom for Julian Assange. But there is that one that I think has 
a lot of implications for if you want to do like radical organizing of some sorts. Like the first thing that if you're going to fight capitalist institutions, the first thing they're going to do is like block your bank account. Even though like it's a privatized financial system because you're going, we're all going through profit oriented like retail banks or like Visa or MasterCard or PayPal or whatever else. They're all profit oriented companies. Like they're all going to do whatever the state says, because it's a heavily, quote unquote, heavily regulated industry. So if the government says like, we don't like this person, they're not going to give them financial services. Or if, I mean, just like the thing with like people, especially, I don't know if if it's the same anymore, but like when people, when weed was first becoming legal, like all these companies that were selling weed couldn't use financial services. They had to like basically do everything in cash and like whatever else. There's a big issue with this like financialized, privatized monetary system. The only place we really have like a truly public use of money is like through cash. But for me, it's if you're going to like really challenge power, you have to think ahead on how to stay resilient. And one of those things we can see examples of through WikiLeaks and also through SciHub, which is another great example, I think, is to like accept cryptocurrency as just like a backup at the very least to get around the financial system. So to me, like this is the kind of like the lowest hanging fruit for why I think it's interesting. And this is not saying that cryptocurrency is money either. So like one of the things that people will say is, oh, well, WikiLeaks accepted Bitcoin because Bitcoin is money. No, Bitcoin is not money. And that means that it was able to subvert the financial system. You were able to get around the railings of the regulated financial system. And therefore, it is not money. And that's great. The fact that it's not money is like very good that you can do that and take advantage of that specific property of it to support an organization like WikiLeaks. Yeah, the uh, use of it outside of the traditional banking system is one that I have heard a lot about. Obviously, it's one of the more funding and sort of the maybe the multi-signature wallets are some of the ones that I've personally heard examples people we've had on the show. Like we had uh, Marissa Rando of PacDAO on the show, which I know is um, a member of Brechain Cooperative, which hopefully we'll have a, maybe a minute at the end to, to talk about because I'm curious about that. She was saying she was like trying to find a way to democratically manage finances and have multiple people attached to a bank, but there's like checks in place. And she said, somebody, maybe it was you. (laughs) Somebody was like, oh, that's a multi-sig wallet. She was like, oh, it's so interesting. But are there any like perhaps more experimental or wacky out there ideas for the way that blockchain tools, technology could be used to help, you know, people organize or coordinate or whatever that hasn't been tried yet? That maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, this is a cool idea. Why hasn't someone tried this yet? Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm full of wacky ideas, I feel like sometimes, but I try to take take things one day at a time for what to get there. I mean, I think I have a lot of ideas of things that I would wish would be built, but that don't fit kind of the current logic right now of the way that applications are being built, I think. One of the things that maybe is like the wackier ones that I think would be really interesting and a completely different way of thinking about housing, for example, is I wrote a piece back in the beginning of the pandemic because that was a time whenever everyone was worried that they were going to lose their apartment because they couldn't go to work. And we were like facing potentially like a huge homelessness crisis because of it. I kind of theorized uh, or laid out this plan for like a housing for all token where you could use a blockchain in order to allocate housing in a public manner or in like a democratic manner. The reason why we have homelessness is because we've politically chosen to have housing done through 
capitalist markets. So like that inherently will create homelessness because we don't allocate the priority of a market is not to house everyone. The priority of a market is to for people at the top to make money off of it. And you are therefore incentivized to not house people so you can keep the supply low. So in a world where we have instead housing held in common or in public, then we could use a blockchain to administer housing tokens to everybody. I use the example of Mushroom Kingdom. Like I just said, imagine you're in the Mushroom Kingdom. There's been like the socialist revolution and now all the housing in Mushroom Kingdom is held in common. You use the blockchain in order to facilitate the allocation of the housing resources for the public. Since you have more houses than people, we're all pretty good. We have a little bit extra in case we need it, which is the case now is just that markets don't really allocate for them. And therefore we can use a token to kind of hold the information specifically about a person so that that would give them a right to either a larger house, a house with more rooms, house with a backyard, depending on their specific conditions. So I use the example, imagine Mario is a single dad with a kid. Therefore, like his token, that's recorded on the blockchain that he's a single dad. He has a right to a house with at least two rooms for his kid. And Luigi is a single guy, so he doesn't need that much space. Therefore, his housing token is a right to a much smaller place. And so like in this type of way, we're able to allocate resources in a much more, I think, logical way, or just like a much more democratic way that fulfills the needs of the community. You've said a lot about blockchain projects and tokens and kind of the processes and conventional procedures of traditional finance basically coming on chain and that capitalism has therefore ruined cryptocurrency or the crypto sector. So I want to ask, what are your thoughts on this? Blockchain projects don't need tokens to trade in a marketplace to achieve their impact. And there's a few projects that do well pre-token, even Arkham, even though they've recently really screwed up and possibly lost the confidence of a lot of people in the crypto market or in the blockchain kind of sleuthing market made this mistake, right? Like the product had great utility and was free and didn't have a token, but then they did an airdrop and through that we figured out that they didn't do a good job of protecting user data and some other things came out about the project, which I think are more kind of rumor and possibly slander than actual truth. So we won't explore those, but there's a number of projects in the space that have done well in the absence of a token. So I don't think they need tokens. Do you think it's possible or is it now a feature that is out of their control? No, I mean, I think it's just really dependent on the context. Like there's probably plenty of context where a token doesn't need to be used and isn't necessary. I think a token is just like a representation of that highly depends on the context in which it's meant to be used. By and large, the model that people are trying to emulate whenever they do make tokens is basically shares in a company of some sort. That's kind of like the default, default of token governance, I think. But that isn't necessarily the way that all things should be run course. And that means that we don't necessarily need tokens to make things for sure. Tokens can be useful if they're designed in particular ways. I think token engineering as like a, a field of study is something that will be really interesting to see how it develops and the way it like implements cybernetics, which I think is a very interesting field of study um, that should be taken a lot more seriously in the cryptocurrency world. So yeah, I guess it really just depends on the context. I'm not like anti or pro token. I'm definitely anti-bad tokens <laughs> and like tokens that simply emulate, I don't know, the same as like a share in a company. I think we can be more creative than that. That's sort of actually the reason why 
I kind of made my the piece that I just spoke about, about housing for all token. This token represents a right to housing, which is not the same as like the right to being a shareholder within basically a for-profit company. So yeah, I guess it just depends on the context that the token is being created. I think there is this tendency to only think that tokens are basically like shares and that's something that we should get away from. There needs to be that design space needs to be cracked open a whole bunch. And I think we can do something much more interesting with those things if we bring the, the right minds together for it. Would it be helpful or have any impact if people in the space began to separate crypto and blockchain? Or, or do you view them as being synonymous? I mean, they're not synonymous. I don't think that's really the thing that needs to be separated. I think the conceptual separation needs to happen at the token level of just like, what do you want this token to do? Why do you need it? And trying to understand the types of relationships that token would administer, would give you. Like if we're talking about a shareholder token, then okay, probably you're basically just emulating capitalist social relationships just on chain. And to me, that's a lot less interesting because we've seen like this trying to recreate the same things over again, but on a different medium is just not, it's not working out for crypto at the moment, I think, by continuing to do that. Sorry, I got to run, but um, it was a pleasure meeting you. I hope to read your book once I get some off time. And I'm looking forward to this podcast coming out. And if you run the circuit, give us a shout out. And I look forward to seeing you interview elsewhere also. So thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, cool. Thanks a lot. We're recording this on Tuesday, July 25. So your book comes out August 8. By the time this episode is released, your book will already be out. So everybody can go check it out. But at the book launch, which was just two days ago at the time of recording, there were a couple of interesting topics that came up, either that you brought up or other people brought up. And I wanted to kind of rephrase and revisit a couple of them that were particularly interesting to me. So one of the questions that somebody asked, and shout out to this person, I don't know their name, but <laughs> shout out to them because uh, I want to sort of take their topic and perhaps reframe it just a little bit, which was kind of your vision of what a future perfect socialist world where everything goes right or everything goes left, I guess to make a pun out of it, everything goes left, what that looks like. And to kind of take that idea, in your mind, is blockchain just a tool to get to the future, to fight the system, to get to the future you want? Or in a perfect future, is blockchain mass used by industries, electricity companies or utility companies are running, tracking everything on a blockchain and the housing credits are on a blockchain. Like where does blockchain sit in a socialist future? What's its role? Yeah. So that's a um, yeah, difficult question for me, for sure. I think to me, the I'm a socialism maxi, right? Rather than a Bitcoin maxi. All I want is like for us to get away from like this type of exploitative economic system that we currently live in and move towards one that's more democratically run and allows for more freedom. Essentially, I don't think that capitalism gives us freedom at all. Everything is always just behind a paywall if you want your freedom. And so for me, I have various ideas about where a blockchain could be used in like a hypothetical socialist future, like the housing for all token. And then I have ideas about how to use it in ways that are subversive of the existing system. So how to like fight against it. I have like both of these things in mind. I think in the future, maximally socialist future, I think there is a question of do we really need blockchains to do socialism? My answer is probably not. But I do think that it is a tool that's probably useful for many things. So why not try and think about it, especially when it comes to resource allocation and distribution at a mass scale? I think for me, socialism has nothing to do with 
having a unitary government that decides and makes all the decisions. I'm more interested in a type of socialism that allows for bottom-up like inputs about what's going on in the economy. And therefore, you can, based on those inputs, be able to predict the things that we need to create collectively in order to like satisfy everybody's needs, which is very similar to things that already very large companies do. Like, you know, we have all of this. Our productive forces have increased so much to the point where it is almost becoming ridiculous, like the amount of shit that we have, but yet still there are people who are hungry and people who don't have, just that it's all behind a paywall. I think there is perhaps a case to be made for cybernetically driven, bottom-up, decentralized, democratically planned economies that perhaps use blockchains in one way or another because it's useful in one particular aspect or not. I don't want to, they say like, I don't want to make the cookbooks for the future because I think it's all dependent on like whatever specific context we're in. If there's another technology, they can do the same thing, but better. Sure. Let's just go with that. I'm not really like hung up about it. I called myself the blockchain socialist because it's weird to call yourself the distributed ledger technology socialist or whatever. It was just like blockchain exists and it's become very popular. It's something I became really interested in and wanted to like research and look more into over time. So yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of potential for the use of blockchain for democratically run economies. And I think there are people already in the crypto space who are doing this. Whether or not they want to call themselves socialists or whatnot is besides the point. And it's like worthy keeping up with those experiments, I think. And if we can find those things to subvert the system as it exists or create you know, parallel or new systems that can compete, then I'm all for it. So the most prominent use of blockchain is obviously Bitcoin. The one that brought blockchain is sort of the mainstream attention and all of the perceptions that come with it. So does Bitcoin, is that still around in a socialist future? Does that, is it needed? Is it a threat to a socialist? I don't necessarily say centralized or planned because that's a whole debate within socialism. I know whether you do that or not, but like, well, what is its role? Does it survive? My feeling is that in the short term, for sure, for short to medium term, it's going to continue to exist anyways. Whether or not that is the thing we need to use in order to like subvert the system or not is one thing. But I think in a maximally socialist future, if you want to call it that, I don't think that it's necessary, Bitcoin in particular, because Bitcoin is like very, very undemocratic and it's extremely rigid. So it's like unable to adapt to existing economic conditions. It's always sort of like, doing what it can to exist as it is. And for a lot of people, that's the point, right? That there's 21 million, no one can fuck with it, whatever. But that's not how I would see a socialist economy like successfully run. I imagine that I would rather have a system where I can have trust that the collective good is ultimately the output of that system. And for Bitcoin, that is not the case. Bitcoin is definitely, in my view, the output of Bitcoin is essentially accumulation of a scarce asset. It's just like purely within like a capitalistic logic and a very conservative logic. If you are in a deflationary monetary system that basically shuts down the entire economy, nobody wants to spend in a deflationary economy. Like even within their own logic of capitalism, it's going to destroy it. So, I mean, maybe if you're like a, a hardcore accelerationist or something, you want that to happen. But I'm more on the side that it's just like not viable in the long term. There's like clearly problems that it needs to resolve, that it has not resolved. And so, yeah, if you have, let's say you are, the reason why it's kind of like problematic if in case people don't know is that like if you have money in a deflationary system, that means your money is becoming more expensive over time. From a position of thinking that saving is a good thing, that it's like 
a worthy thing to save or something like that, then you're, oh, great. It's benefiting savers even more. But really what it's benefiting is lenders over credit over debtors. So creditors over debtors. If you give a loan in 10 Bitcoin or whatever it is, the person who takes on that loan, their loan is going to inherently become more and more expensive over time. It's become more and more difficult for them to find 10 Bitcoin to pay off their debts. It would create a situation of like debt bondage, essentially, because more much more difficult. And it also like encourages lack of spending. So then nobody wants to, to spend their deflationary currency because they want to protect themselves for the future. So for me, I think in a socialist economy, I don't think Bitcoin is really necessary. I think ideally we would have, if there is a blockchain involved or a specific cryptocurrency involved, it would be one that is democratically managed and democratically run, is adaptable to whatever the economic conditions are in a way that is like, you know, more fair for everybody that's involved in that economy. Which leads me directly into another point that you mentioned during your presentation at the book launch, which was this idea that most blockchains today are the consensus involves economic incentivization. So if we're going to have a democratically run, people-powered blockchain, something like that, how do you incentivize people to validate the transactions to secure the network? Is it just proof of authority where you have like the, I don't know, the big institutions validate the transactions? You just get ideologically motivated volunteers who want to do it for the public good, people who might be doing mutual aid now, that in the future would be validating transactions on a blockchain. Uh, like, how do you have a socialized blockchain and like in practical terms? Mm, that's a huge question that I would love to have more people to help me figure out. Because <laughs> I know it's really difficult. Like the reason why blockchains are so, why they work in the first place is because they fit within the logic of capitalism. They fit within the logic of capital. When you are staking or if you're mining or whatever else, you're making an investment with the expectation that you're going to get more. And like the assumptions within the code is the expectation that there's enough people with that logic that they're going to continue doing it. So like Bitcoin is going to continue. If there was no reason to accumulate profits or wealth in our society, then blockchains would crumble because that's the way that they're designed. Like if that logic doesn't exist, they would crumble. So I think it is a pretty big question. Like if we do live in a world, I mean, there's, there's like two directions to this, right? There's like, if we live in a world already that doesn't have the profit motive, then what do we do versus how do we make a different type of consensus mechanism in a world that is profit oriented? I think those are like two different questions. And maybe the second one is one that needs to be answered first. But it's also hard to say if you answer it in that way, that it will still be successful. I think well, plenty of uh, libertarians will say, like, obviously not, because profits are good. And because, like, if we pursue our individual interests, then we'll, the outputs of all of that is, like, the best world possible, which I find a bit silly. Clearly, if, like, everyone's going after their individual interests, then, which is happening right now, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean... I certainly don't have the answer, so I don't envy you or anyone else for trying to figure that question out. I want to zoom out for a minute or zoom in. I don't know which direction exactly this is going, but to talk about the process of writing and publishing the book itself. I think you said you've been working on this book. You had been working on the book for two years. So, and I think you started the podcast three years ago. Is that correct? I started in like end of 2019. Yeah. So like end of 2019, like before the pandemic, right? Well, actually, no. I started writing then that the podcast started during the pandemic. I'm curious then, what was your experience, first of all, working with a radical publisher? I heard that they reached out to you. Now, you didn't reach out to them, which is 
super unique and pretty cool. But most radical publishers I'm aware of or I have read books from are typically more tech cautious, I would say. They tend to publish books that are very critical of technology. Obviously, there's a lot to criticize about surveillance, capitalism, and and police surveillance. And um, there's a lot of bad stuff with tech. But I tend to see more anti-crypto books, if anything, come out of these sorts of small indie radical publishers than I see pro-crypto books come out. So were they, is this publisher just happens to be a fan of crypto or did they happen to catch one of your episodes and were like, this sounds cool. I kind of want to explore this or like, what was the process of how this book even came to fruition? So the history is really interesting about repeater books because it was started by a guy named Mark Fisher. And Mark Fisher was a philosopher in the UK who unfortunately passed away. But during his time, he wrote a book called Capitalist Realism. So it became a really big hit when it came out because it kind of was a really good way, a really well-written book that kind of distilled kind of like our current moments of how neoliberalism and capitalism more broadly has kind of like limited our imagination about the future. So like he builds on this quote from somebody else that goes, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So like we're kind of in this moment where we feel that there is no other answer, like there is no alternative is like the famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher, like the evil neoliberal woman from the UK. And like, so his writing was super influential for me, which is really, so I was like really, really surprised and happy when they reached out if I wanted to talk and about writing a book. They, the specific person who had reached out to me had listened to a couple of my my podcasts from Understand and like had read some of my stuff and was like, I think just the repeater books tends to be a type of publisher that's more interested in the things that other publishers will not talk about, especially just like on the left. So they are kind of like the ones who are pursuing kind of like the more unique type of things. And I think it comes from the legacy of Mark Fisher of like trying to reimagine a different future than the one that we are currently stuck in. They have written or have published, I think, only a couple of other books about technology. The other one I know is Abolish Silicon Valley um, by Wendy Liu, which is also a really interesting book about someone who went from like being a super, she was like super into Google and like big tech and like was an intern there and then became a socialist over time after trying to make a startup and like working for these like big tech companies became disillusioned essentially. But so, yeah, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with this specific publisher as to why I was asked to do it. And then for other publishers, I mean, it's hard to say. I think there is generally this tech critical moment that we're in, which to be fair, like <laughs> I'm also critical of a lot of tech. I don't think it's the only people who are like super like at this moment anymore. Like I feel like there are much fewer people who are really gung ho about all technology. Um, they tend to be people who are wildly utopian and like, I don't know, detached from reality, perhaps. But yeah, so I mean, there is this moment, I think, for the left that has been critical. I think there was like a moment where tech kind of was able to take the mantle of being progressive, quote unquote, for a lot of people for a long time. If you talk to like super hardcore right wingers, even today, they'll say like, oh, Google and like, um, you know, Facebook are like communist organizations or something like that. Wild stuff, because there's belief that like people who work in tech tend to be more progressive, which is I'm not sure like really what the numbers are there. So I think there's a little bit of kind of like on the left of just kind of like, we're sick of this shit now. Like we thought there's a, a moment when people thought like social media would like bring out the left wing message to the masses and they would finally understand. But what we've realized is that like, because the tech is owned by giant corporations and billionaires who don't have our interests at heart, like they're able to manipulate how this information is dispersed. And they're also able to put out way more data and information than we are because it's like 
very cheap. So the cheapness has some potentials in being able to put out the message out, but it also means that if you have more money, you can produce a lot more content and have the network to get it to more people because you can purchase all the tooling and the things that you need for all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in this like particular moment. Just in general, since you've started podcasting, have there been any interviews you've done, people you've spoken with that have really challenged you or changed your mind on something and made you rethink either your concept of socialism or your concept of what it means to be a blockchain radical or the ways capitalism is ruined crypto or how to fix it? And uh, you'll see there, I basically threw in your book title in there. But yeah, I mean, are there any interviews that kind of stand out in terms of like really sort of intellectually challenging you? Uh, yeah, definitely a couple talking to, for example, someone like Cory Doctorow was pretty challenging because he is someone who is like very prominent sort of like tech left person who's very critical of cryptocurrency in the blockchain space. And so he really challenged me to, I mean, to me, it was like, you know, this is someone who is much older than me, wiser, what have you, and has a lot of experience in doing tech activism. And I had to kind of like try my best to put like the best case forward for what I'm specifically advocating for. So that conversation, I think, helped me a lot kind of hone sort of the things that maybe I should talk about or how I should frame it for specifically that type of person or audience. Speaking to Vitalik was incredibly interesting to me. It's something like I had already kind of suspected, but it kind of, I think, helped me confirm that like a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world are not, they're more open-minded than you think for a lot of people. This is not the case for all of them, of course, but like there, there are plenty that are willing to be intellectually challenged. And so I'm there to hopefully intellectually challenge them on their assumptions about like how the economy and society works. And usually I get like pretty decent response if I'm face to face or whatever in person with someone like that. Usually I can get a good response just because I try to be intellectually honest with them and therefore and not like sort of like distort their arguments. I don't know. I think there's a certain amount of power in being able to like have intellectually honest discussion with someone who vastly disagrees with you and just to put forward what your beliefs are to create some kind of mutual understanding. And I think through that process, usually I've been pretty successful in some cases in like pushing people more to the left who usually this would be people who are like open to maybe left-wing thoughts, but maybe at first they have the wrong impression of what it means to be left-wing or like politically or like politically left-wing in a radical sense. I think it was just something a lot of people don't really necessarily understand. Okay, what do you believe if that's a thing? They kind of like have this caricature of what that means like over the internet. And that's because the communication infrastructure is owned by like billionaires. And of course they don't want you to know what radical left-winger thinks. That's like completely against their interest. So yeah, I think not just from the podcast, but like also going to conferences, going to like different events with others where I can like have face-to-face in-person conversations with people who are building these applications and who like really believe in it, I think has helped me harness kind of like an ability to communicate with them just like through practice. Yeah, I think that you know, like you go online and you look at some of these more conservative or right-leaning podcasts or 
talk show hosts or whoever, and their idea of the radical left is like Elizabeth Warren. And it's, it's so funny. You kind of mentioned this yourself where you hinted at it. You kind of occupy a very unique space, I think, in the cryptocurrency world, which is that you are a very open leftist and you're a very open socialist specifically, which is a little bit dirty of a word to a lot of people. I think in the crypto space, especially people have a little more friendliness toward anarchists and a little more aligned with the cypherpunk roots. You see a lot of anarcho-capitalists. I don't know if that's really, that's a debate of whether that's an anarchist or not. (laughs) But yeah, you don't see a lot of people in general who are openly socialist and or openly pro-blockchain. And you are both, you are the blockchain socialist. So do you find that, that does that open any doors to you? Like, or does it close any doors? Do you find that people are less likely to want to talk to you about either blockchain on the left, about either blockchain or socialism because you're so open about your love of both? Or do you find perhaps that people maybe who wouldn't have otherwise ever wanted to connect with cryptocurrency are more willing to talk with you because you are so open about your politics? I've gone so like when I was making my persona, I guess, and like the blog and podcast, like I didn't know what to call it at first. I just knew what I wanted to talk about and how I wanted to talk about it. And I didn't want to call myself, I don't know, something like Shadow Wolf 99, you know, like some a apolitical reference, even though what I want to talk about was very political. I just want to be like upfront about it because at the time when I was starting, I mean, there was like nobody openly being a socialist, incredibly few. And so I felt like there was a need for it. There needs to be someone who's open about it. And I felt like very comfortable defending my positions. Like I don't have any qualms about it. If we disagree, we disagree, but I don't think that's going to change like the way that I think about things most of the time. So I've heard people say that they'll call me like blockchain communist or something like that as a way to make me seem even worse, like crazy, because they don't want to listen to my arguments. And that's fine. Most of the time, people who do do that, it's like people who are already deep, way too deep into the rabbit hole that I can possibly necessarily, I cannot individually try to bring them out of that, you know, it's too much. But I think by being openly socialist, it's also like people find curiosity in that. I think we had a big moment, I think just particularly in the US with Bernie Sanders, where a lot more people have identified as socialists and who like they may not have have read like Marx or whatever, but they're open to the idea of socialism because they really like Bernie Sanders. They want to have universal health care and they like do feel that there's a need for something like that. So it was just like you know, a door, I think, into it. People on the left... I think generally they don't like me because of the blockchain part. (laughs) But I do find that when I'm in left-wing circles, in-person is very different than online. Online, I have gotten a lot of flack in different places, but it has decreased a lot, I think, just because of my consistency of being who I am and being open about it. And like, you can criticize me all you want, but also like there's plenty of evidence of me not being a shithead or whatever, or not being like a libertarian asshole. So I think that's just like came over time, like people building more confidence in me. But yeah, in person, usually they're much nicer and much more open to the idea. Of course, this is just like generally, I think it's just like a very loud minority on the left online. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren, like liberals don't count as a left, in my opinion, or just it's the right wing of the left, I guess, at best, have just kind of embraced the label of a socialist because I feel quite confident in being able to defend it. And I think I will probably continue to do so. There's no plans to become the blockchain moderate anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. I think that most people I speak to, regardless of their political persuasion, I'm always a little cautious to say I work in crypto because you never know what anyone's going to say. And I feel like I have to qualify it. Like, 
work in crypto, but my podcast focuses on the niche parts where it does make sense to use crypto. We're like, you got to kind of qualify it. But to be honest, I feel like most people just don't even really understand it across all political spectrums. I say I work in crypto and they go, oh, that's I've heard of that, but I don't really know anything about it. Or, oh, that sounds crazy. Or, oh, the price is down, right? Like, but they don't really know anything about it. And then you try, you, you start to talk to them about it and they're generally open to hear what you have to say, even if the other information they may have been fed previously by whoever was that crypto is bad or crypto is 100% perfect or whatever their preconceived ideologies are. So just as like, I guess, a closing question, how has your experience been now that you're de-anonymized? Because you were pseudonymous for a very long time. I don't know if you'd go to conferences and introduce yourself as the blockchain socialist, or if you were in and there, you wore a ski mask or whatever. But was that sort of scary to put your public face? And I see you doing live events now in your name, and people can look you up, presumably. Like, was that scary? And has it, do you think it's been worth it? Yeah. It's definitely been a bit scary, but it hasn't, nothing too bad has happened yet. I would definitely, I would go to conferences as myself and just like, if it came up, I would tell them who I am. But I've talked to a lot of people who didn't know who I was, which has been interesting. I've had occasions where people are talking to me and they ask me if I've heard of like my own podcast and I have to tell them like, oh, that's me. <laughs> it's been really funny. I've also had a couple of times where people recognize my voice. So, but it has nothing like too bad has, has happened because of it. Originally, I was pseudonymous because I mean, like I worked a job and I just didn't want my job to know and like didn't want to be that guy known in the workplace as like the guy who has a podcast about blockchain socialism or whatever. And I didn't know what my boss's politics were, but I didn't think that he probably agreed with me. So mostly just like avoiding that. And also like, I think it was helpful for like, especially in the beginning, just at certain points when people were very, very vitriolic. Yeah, I think it just like gave me a layer of protection to where they couldn't just like look me up and then like blast my information or something over social media because they disliked my position on, on cryptocurrency or whatever. Until now at this point where I have people who know me, like I have a following, I have a book that came out with through a left-wing publishing house. So now there's like, I had, I use that as like a layer of protection to like now where I have more credibility and legitimacy because I've had this like accumulated amount of just like, I don't know, portfolio or like work that I've come out with. So it the the long-term plan somehow like panned out <laughs> in some way. Yeah, I sometimes think about that. I mean, I, I'm obviously fully doxxed, but I do think that there is a certain significance and importance also in having people that are fully doxxed and fully themselves out there in the space to give the space a sense of legitimacy as well as you're a person of color. I think I can say that safely. <laughs> and that also is important I think that that it's your choice to decide if you want people to know that, that or to be out and have your face out there. But it does offer more connection to people who may look like you, may talk like you, may have similar ancestry to you, who may otherwise feel unrepresented in the blockchain space. And I think that's also a very uh, potentially positive net outcome from you being de-anonymized and being Joshua Davila instead of simply just the blockchain socialist. But yeah, I mean, that that's it for me. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your day and commuting here. I don't know if this was audible in the recording, but there was a quite violent thunderstorm for the majority of the time that we were recording and uh, Joshua arrived here a little bit wet. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for bearing the elements and chatting with, with Ray and I. It's been a pleasure. No, yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate the questions and uh, 
Yeah, totally worth coming here in the rain. <laughs> I appreciate that. So the book is called Blockchain Radicals, How Capitalism Ruined Crypto and How to Fix It. And one last question being for anybody who listened to the podcast, like what they heard and wants to know more about you, what you're up to or where to find the book, where can they do so? Where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter or X or whatever, at TB Socialists, also on like Blue Sky and Lens and Farcaster and all those other ones, as well as TB Socialists, probably, or if you look up the Blockchain Socialists, um, my website's theblockchainsocialists.com. You can find the podcast basically in any podcasting platform. And the book, you can find... There's repeaterbooks.com is the publisher, but you could probably find it in, depending on the country, it depends on what kind of um, platform you want to use to get it online, but it should also be coming physically to certain stores as well. So yeah, I think if you look it up, you should be able to find it. And I have as well a link somewhere where you can find basically, depending on your country or region, where the book is being sold as well. The Agenda is hosted and produced by me, Ray Salmond. And by me, Jonathan DeYoung. You can listen and subscribe to The Agenda at cointelegraph.com slash podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and leave a review. You can find me on Twitter at Horace Hughes, H-O-R-U-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and just about everywhere else at MadDopeMatic. That's M-A-D-D-O-P-E-M-A-D-I-C. Be sure to follow Cointelegraph on Twitter and Instagram at Cointelegraph. 